Hey all, thank you for tuning into Women Birders Happy Hour. My name is Hannah. I'm a birder, a woman, and someone that enjoys a good drink after a long day of birding. Women have been integral to birding since it started, but we haven't always been recognized for the contributions and impact we have. Men have dominated the guiding scene, festival circuit, leadership positions, and publications. And according to a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service 2011 report, in the U.S., there were over 47 million birders. The majority of these birders are college-educated, they are white, they are women, and mostly are over the age of 55. And if you put all these factors together, we create the typical birder, a white, college-educated woman over the age of 55. And that's a demographic that I often see out birding, but I don't as frequently see as a speaker, a guide, or a sole publisher. Additionally, the voices of all women, BIPOC, and LGBTQ plus birders are not well represented in the birding voices we hear from. So I created this show to bring in more voices. Not to say that some of the regular festival keynotes aren't great, but there is room for others. And on the show, I'm asking everyday women from all walks of life to join me to discuss their experiences, their resources, and advice that they have for others. And I want you to remember that just because you may not have experienced some of these things, like sexism or gatekeeping, doesn't mean that they aren't real issues that others face. And because some of these conversations are best had over a cocktail or a mocktail, I also create a unique cocktail for each guest in case you want to mix yourself a drink and join us for this chat. Photographers can do a lot of good with their cameras. They can be a liaison between wildlife and humankind in a way that birders just can't always be. And Susan is a huge advocate of doing just that. She uses her photography to bring these amazing creatures to life and displays them on places like her social media to get folks involved in conservation issues as well as just appreciate the beauty that the world has for us. And Atlantic puffins are the iconic puffin species that most people know, and birders and non-birders. My, where I live, we have tufted puffins, and we often have people that come and are frustrated that they're not looking at Atlantic puffins here, because those ones are a bit cuter than our tufted puffins, which look a little quirkier. Anyways, so these cherub-faced cuties can be found in the colder waters of the Atlantic Ocean. The population size was quite large and ha they have a wide range, however it's declined rapidly in parts of that range. They have a black crown and back, pale gray cheek patches, and white underparts. Their beak is red and black and orange, uh, and their legs are orange, which all really stand out. And the name puffin refers to puffed up as in swollen and comes from the fatty salted meat of young birds. They're a sturdily built bird with a thick set neck, short wings, and tail. And the males are slightly larger than females, but otherwise they look the same. So more than 90% of the global population is found in Europe and Iceland, hosts about 60% of that. And outside of the breeding season, the puffins are out at sea, far from land. They only visit coastal areas to breed in large colonies. And while out at sea, they lead solitary existences, and there's actually been very little information collected about what happens during that time. Their diet is almost entirely made of fish, but they will occasionally eat shrimp, mollusks, and marine worms. And they fish by swimming underwater, um, using semi-extended wings as paddles and their feet like a rudder. And during breeding season, mature birds return to the colony where they were hatched and find or dig out burrows. They improve them, line them with grasses, and in preparation for having eggs and babies.
The adults are monogamous and both of them will provide care for the chick. And they lay a single egg and it depends on their location when they start breeding. Some breed as early as April and then some others don't breed until June. Um, the egg is incubated for about a month and a half. And from then, you know, they have a chick that's hatched because the parents start to bring food back to the burrow. The parents will incubate for a few more days until its appetite just grows too much and they both have to spend more time foraging. And the adults will hunt more than 20 miles offshore for their chicks. They're hunting chiefly for sand eels, herring, and other bait fish for their chicks. And then about a month and a half later, the chicks will fledge and head out into the ocean to spend three or four years before they come back to their natal burrows and hatching areas and uh, start the cycle again. They have a number of predators, including seals and large fish while at sea on islands and land where they breed. It might be mammals like foxes, rats, cats, or other birds like gulls and skuas. And they are also at risk from toxic contamination, drowning fishing nets, declining food species, climate change, and introduced species like rats and uh, vegetation species such as tree mallow. And humans also harvest them for food. So there's a lot of pressures on Atlantic puffins. Um, There are a lot of conservation efforts and we can help the species recover. So to make your Atlantic puffin, what you'll need is an ounce and a half of vodka, three quarter ounces of Godiva liqueur, a splash of orange liqueur, chocolate syrup, a splash of half and half, and ice. So here's what you need to do. You need to prepare your martini glass by drizzling chocolate syrup around the inside lip and letting that um, kind of drizzle down the side. Uh, Fill the shaker with ice, the vodka, liqueurs, and half and half. Shake, shake, shake and then strain into your prepared glass. This cold and flavorful cocktail represents a beautiful coloration of this bird with orange of its bill, that rich black of its back, and white for its face. I hope you get a chance to enjoy this delicious drink and think about watching Atlantic puffins in cool waters off the coast of Maine, England, or Iceland. And please uh, join me in this chat with Susan. Okay. Well, Susan, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Could you please tell everyone who you are? Thank you for having me, Hannah. My name is Susan Petraco. I uh, live in Vieira, Florida, which is central Florida, just below um, Merritt Island National Wildlife Refuge. A lot of birders know about that. So that's kind of my um, stomping grounds, I guess I would say. Um, And I have been here um, for most of my life. I lived about five years in Texas, but that was before I was a birder. So I never saw any of the birds over there while I lived there. I have been back since. Uh, but I grew up in South Carolina. And um, again, that was before I was a birder. So I've been back, but I didn't do any of that. Um, I got into this about um, probably about seven or eight years ago. So um, my experience is, is uh, pretty fairly new compared to people who've been doing it for a while. But um, yeah, that, so that's kind of where I've I, I live where I grew up. Um, for work, I do um, e-commerce development. So I work on people's websites a lot. I sit in front of the computer, which is why birding is really a nice hobby because it doesn't involve me sitting in front of the computer unless I'm processing photos that I took. It gives me a chance to, to get outside and get some exercise and fresh air. Okay. Well, you live in an incredible place to go birding. Marin Island is yeah, yeah. just one of my very favorite places to go. Cool. Cool. So uh, what is your birding origin story? Well, it should have been back in high school. Uh, I took a vertebrate biology class 
from someone who was actually an ornithologist. But the summer prior to that, I had done a research project. We were required to do senior research projects, and I had done mine on uh, insects. And I spent most of vertebrate biology field trips looking at invertebrates and getting um, jokingly yelled at, not not really, uh, but um, by, by the professor for not looking at vertebrates and particularly birds. But we did get to go on a, a really nice um, several day field trip out to Lake Matamuskeet in North Carolina. And that kind of got did get me interested in birds. We got to see a lot of things that um, it wasn't like looking at house sparrows or something like that. That's not interesting. We got to get out and, and see stuff that wasn't just there on the co- on the campus where I went to school. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't stick. Uh, so it wasn't until about um, the maybe around 2010 or so that I, I really started wanting to get into photography. And that was what led to my birding. I finally uh, bought a camera and I was just taking pictures of whatever I wanted to, you know, friends, family, things sitting around, pets, you know, whatever, uh, uh, or maybe even vacation photos, things like that. But someone uh, had told me that there was a swan uh, on one of the major thoroughfares here in the town, not thoroughfares, major roads here in the town. And so I went over there to take pictures because she'd had signets. And while I was there, I met uh, a friend of mine named Rachel who said, hey, do you ever go out to the Vieira wetlands? Uh, There's a lot of things out there. And I had never been. I knew it existed, but I didn't know much about it. So I started going there and driving around and taking pictures. And when you take pictures, you kind of want to know what it was you took the picture of. So I you know, learned how to identify different herons and egrets and, and just red-winged blackbirds, the things that are very easy to see when you go to wetland preserves here in Florida. And then I started picking up the more, um, not rare, but the, the less obvious birds, I want to say. Uh, and that's when I really got excited. This was, it became a puzzle. It became a challenge. Um, so I, I, at that point, started kind of moving, I don't want to say moving away from photography, but uh, becoming as much of a birder as I was a photographer. Um, and I still kind of struggle with that a little bit. It's a little, it's it's funny because a lot of bird photographers don't like birders and a lot of birders don't like bird photographers. And it, it's funny, you think that there would be a lot of common ground, but I think they get on each other's nerves sometimes. <laughs> so I, I think of myself as probably about 60, 40, 60% birder, 40% birding photographer or bird photographer. Uh, so I still, you know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm involved with some organizations and I, I work on things related to conservation and stuff. But uh, for me, really, the, the love of it is still chasing a new bird or getting a good photograph of a new or old to me bird. I always find it really funny how many photographers um, take it, you know, these incredible photos and then come to me and ask, like, what is this bird that I took a photo of? <laughs> it's like, I yeah. would love to get a picture. I would love to get a view of a bird like that. Right, right. <laughs> um, it's uh, one of the things that I, I would like to be able to do is inspire some of the photographers in conservation. I think a lot of photographers do. I mean, they realize that if the birds go away, they don't have anything to take pictures of. But I, I find that some of them just haven't really been um, in a situation that's forced them to to care about wanting to um, contribute to conservation efforts. And I don't necessarily mean financially, but, you know, with their time or with their exposure or whatever. So I, that's one of the things that I really want to, expi- to, to inspire is for people to um, whether they're doing photography or birding or both is, is to 
recognize that we're not just taking from nature. We're not taking photographs or we're not taking, you know, increasing our life list or whatever. We are doing those things. But in addition, we kind of need to give back or everything's going to go away and not be available for us to do it in 10, 20, 50 or 100 years or whatever. So rather than financially, how do you suggest uh, photographers, you know, do that? Give to conservation. Uh, whatever exposure that they currently have, if they are talking about it, I think that helps to spread it. It helps other people care um, and it helps um, other people learn too. So say they're, they're big into Instagram. If they're posting their photos, but then they talk a little bit about this bird is endangered due to habitat loss. And here's, you know, what we can do as, you know, humanity, uh, what we can do to help increase their chances of survival or here's an organization that people can go get involved with if they want to protect scrub jay habitats or you know, what, whatever the, the situation may be just simply education and and knowledge I think really helps people so you know if, if you're a photographer that has a pretty big audience just talking about it really helps with yeah. whatever channel that is yeah that's great yeah just building yeah. awareness yeah exactly so when you go out birding, what does a day of birding look like for you? Um, it kind of depends on whether uh, my goal is to take pictures or to go birding. So I do really like when I go to um, festivals and such, and there's a big day because I really like making more items on my list, more birds on my list, especially if I'm in a location that's not nearby. So there's birds that I've never seen before. Uh, but I wouldn't consider that a typical day. A typical day for me usually does involve my camera. Uh, and the best time to take pictures uh, is early morning uh, and late afternoon. So a lot of times a day of birding will be either the morning or the evening or both, but won't be in the middle. Uh, so from, I would say from, you know, sunrise to maybe 10 a.m. is good. And then take a break. I'll come back. I'll work. I'll sleep. I'll do something not birding or work or sleep related um, or, you know, whatever the day may be. And then I might go back out about four or five o'clock again so that I can get that evening light, the golden hour that they call it, uh, and take some more pictures. And whether it's out, it may be out at a nature preserve or it may just be my backyard where I've got feeders and, and things set up. Uh, we're lucky here, especially in the wintertime in Florida, we get some really great birds that come to our backyard. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't necessarily even have to be very far, but you will usually see me carrying my camera with my zoom lens and my binoculars and trying to struggle to not get the, the neck cords tangled up when I'm trying to switch between the two. Yeah. I keep trying to think that they need to come up with some sort of like harness that you can attach your binoculars and your camera to, so you don't get yeah. tangled up. Yep. I have seen some like that where they go kind of under under the armpit kind of so to speak and you've got one on one side and one on the other but I've never tried it I'm really nervous about what straps that I put my camera on oh sure yeah <laughs> I don't want I don't want them to fall I don't want to I'm clumsy I don't want to you know turn and swing it and hit a tree or a fence post or you know the door frame if I'm still in the house things like that um, so yeah, uh, what's been the most influential thing in your birding oh okay so um, several years ago, I joined the Audubon Society, the, the local chapter, and, and you know, I'm a member of the national organ or international organization too. But the local chapter, I really started getting involved in, um, and that has helped me do so many things, um, specific to birding as well as ancillary to birding, I guess. 
So um, we've got field trips and that lets me go out to places that I've been before or maybe haven't been before, but learn from other people at those places so I can learn how to identify birds, whether looking at them or what I've really learned um, from some of the other members is birding by ear, which is really useful. They've got, um, during COVID we did virtual meetings. So they were, there were presentations by Zoom, but there were also, uh, in-person meetings before that, and we've gone back to the in-person meetings. So it's been a great way to develop friendships with people who have like interests and to also get involved, like I mentioned, with conservation. So we try to um, share that awareness of different environmental causes with our mailing list, with our social media, um, among ourselves, uh, letter writing campaigns and and emails to uh, people in local government, things like that. Um, it, it's really been a great way to get involved. Um, I joined the board and when I did, uh, what I did I was not as an elected position, but I'm their webmaster. So that lets me, I get in and I do uh, some of the social media and all of the website updates and maintenance and content uh, or posting the content that's provided to me. So that's a way for me to kind of give back to the chapter. And um, I, I guess, invest back into what has given me so much. Well, that's awesome that you have such an active chapter and that's, you know, that's an incredible way for you to contribute. I know how much, you know, uh, website web mastering can, can cost an organization. It can be really prohibitive. Right. So that's awesome that you're able to do that for them. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah. And, you know, I've talked before about ways to contribute your your personal skills to an organization to help them, you know, save a little bit of money. Like I always try to do in the newsletter when I'm <laughs> part of a nonprofit because I know how much everybody hates doing that. <laughs> and, you know, I don't really mind. <laughs> so I think I think that's a, a cool way to give back other than just, you know, just being on the board. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So uh, what's it like to be a woman birder in your area? I have found it to be that me, myself, I've felt very supported by others, both women and men uh, who are also board birders in the groups that I'm part of, whether it's Audubon that I mentioned before, or just um, more casual, not specific organizations, but just casual groups of people that meet out. Uh, there are a lot of women involved in them. And I have really met some great people, some great friends through it. So I, I think um, in the, in our area, at least, it's really wonderful to be a woman birder. It's not something that I struggle with. Um, and I haven't heard from any other women that there are any kind of struggles specific to being female in the area. Uh, I've definitely made two really, really good friends through Audubon. And we do most of our birding together, uh, especially if we go on trips. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's just women either. We try to include men. We don't want to flip the tables and, and be exclusive that way um, either. So um, the other thing is that there's a lot of areas nearby to go birding, um, different preserves, whether they're county, state, or, or national level. And most of them feel very safe and secure. So I'm comfortable birding alone or birding with just women. It doesn't feel like we need a, uh, a man to be there for protection. And, and that's nice. But um, you know, it's, um, there are also some areas where you can bird by car. So for people who, um, maybe don't feel as safe, they don't necessarily have to get out of the car or for people with mobility issues, you know, that can be important too, because some people can't go out on a three mile hike to go look at birds, but they still are interested in it. 
So um, I think in this area, at least where I've been, it's been wonderful. Well, that's great. I'm so glad to hear that. So what advice do you have for other women birders? Just get out there and go have fun. Um, I I don't find birders to be intimidating. I'm sure there are some out there and just avoid those people and find the rest. Uh, There's plenty of people who you may not know, you know, a blue jay from a bluebird. They'll help. They, they know it and they've known it for 50 years possibly. And they're not going to think badly of you because you are just learning. Um, I think, most of us want to share our knowledge. We might uh, be a little wanting to be the first ones to answer a question. Oh, I know that ID because it feels really good when you're able to, to know something and, and do it. But I think uh, that that's, uh, it's just a, a really friendly um, environment. One of the main things that we can do to help birders, women or others, is to just invite people along on small groups. So, for instance, when we have our our big field trips with Audubon, that's great, but they're a little more difficult when you have 20 or 30 people because we're making more noise. It's harder to hear the group leader if he or she is in the front and there's people in the back. Uh, It it can just be a little bit more difficult. So what really is beneficial is, you know, just the small informal groups that get together to go birding. So, you know, consider the people who are new or the people who maybe don't get invited as much to other things and and try to include them in your small groups. If they're interested and are available, you know, they'll probably come along and maybe you learn something from them too or make a new friend. I think that's that's the best. It's just to to try to be inclusive of everyone. Yeah, that's great advice. And you know, there there has been a history in some birding groups of gatekeeping. So I think trying to, you know, just invite people out, like you said, is a great way to get beginners and, and other folks involved. Yeah, there's always a, a challenge too when it comes to um, protecting the birds and not sharing it with a hundred people, so that all of a sudden you have all of these people descending on some rare bird or a, a vulnerable, like a nesting site, perhaps. Um, and and I can understand gatekeeping to a certain point when it's done for a good reason, like to protect a, a, an individual bird or a community of birds. Uh, but you know, there's plenty of opportunities to just go out to your local park and look at the common birds in your area that are everywhere and are not threatened and it's not vulnerable. And there's, there's so much more of that, at least in my experience, um, uh, when you're birding, there's, there's obviously more times that you see the common species than you see the uncommon ones. So there's, there's no reason not to have, if, even if you're protecting some trips or some excursions, you don't have to protect them all. Yeah. Awesome. So do you feel that you found your place in the birding community? Yeah, absolutely. The the uh, different groups that I'm part of, whether they're informal or Audubon, it's, it's really been wonderful. Um, it's changed a few times, but I, I, I feel like I've found my place. I've found my people. Uh, so yeah, I, feel, I feel really great about that. That's awesome. So what has been your most memorable bird or birding experience? <laughs> Um, can I share two? Sure. <laughs> okay. I, in 2019, so right before all of the pandemic and everything started, I got to go with one of my birding friends to England and she and I went to bird fair, which is their biggest festival in the UK. And, um, I mean, it was huge. And we were the only two people there without wellies on. <laughs> we're like tromping through the mud in sneakers. 
and going from booth to booth and, and learning all of this stuff and getting information. And it was incredible. I have never been so tired in my life, but we finished up there and then we went to Norfolk and we went to Cly Marshes and Bempton um, Cliffs, which are RSPB properties in England and got to see, um, I think it, they said something like 35,000 northern gannets nesting on the cliffs. Wow. And of course, all kinds of species that they have in England that we don't have here. And a few that they have that we do have here, like Egyptian geese, which was like, oh, okay. But <laughs> there were a lot of really cool things to see. And then last summer, I made plans for my family and I to go to, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to say this wrong, but uh, Machias Seal Island off of uh, the coast of Maine, which is where the puffins, uh, Atlantic puffins, uh, nest and they're, they're blinds. You can go onto the island and like take pictures and see them up close. So we have this whole trip planned and we get up there and a storm comes through. My trip got canceled and we didn't get to do it. So I'm scrambling and like at the last minute, we ended up booking this puffin cruise on a boat out of Booth Bay Harbor. And we got to go out and see them. We didn't get to go. It was not the same island. We didn't get to go on the island. I was taking pictures from the boat. But the puffins were the things that the, the one species that I really, really wanted to see probably more than anything else in the world. And I had not seen them in England because it was a little bit later than their nesting season and they had all left. So I, I we're, we're going out into the, to the ocean from the harbor there in Maine. And they say, we're coming up on it. Uh, I think they called it Egg Island or something. I don't remember exactly, but we're coming up on it. You're going to see puffins any minute now. And I look out and I saw one and I literally cried. <laughs> and I, I've been doing it because we had been through so much heartache with that thing getting canceled and having not, and I knew I wasn't going to see him, you know, three years prior or two years prior, but I had hoped and, you know, it, it had been such a buildup and then such a letdown. And then finally I got to see them and I'm just like, oh, <laughs> And I got pictures and it was great. It ended up really being a, a nice backup plan. I would still like to to do my original plan to go to the island to get on them and get in the blinds and see them. But it, it was more than just an acceptable backup plan. It was wonderful. Well, that's amazing. I'm so glad you said that about Bird Fair. We're, we're going in July to Bird Fair. And, oh, you are. Yeah. And I've been trying to talk my husband into like, you know, I think we need boots because everybody talks about it. So I guess we need to get some. <laughs> Definitely get the wellies because it rains. And there was, just, I mean, we parked in the parking lot and we're like trying to step through the, the, on the grassy areas that look less muddy. And we're like, it'll be fine when we get in there. No, it was not fine when they, when we got in there, everything under the tents was wet and everything between the tents were, was wet. And I think it was, they had 10 or 12 different pavilions. Mm -hmm. And you had to kind of go through the, the murkier areas through these walkway, you know, what would be a walkway between two tents. And that's where everybody else goes. So it all gets churned up. So even if it wasn't totally wet, it was muddy by the time, you know, a thousand or however many people had walked through that area multiple times, probably. But um, I, so, yeah, I would definitely get the boots. Okay. But we had such a great time. We had, you know, formal English tea in a tent in the mud. <laughs> it was just, it was really nice. Okay. Well, I'm excited about that. Yeah. I'm excited for you. <laughs> so what changes would you like to see in the birding community? Oh, well, okay. So this touches back on what I said before, but, but definitely more activism. Uh, I would like 
I would like all of us to realize what we have here and how special it is and how we need to, to help to preserve that. So, you know, what, whether you're, you're writing letters or just filling out the forms that come from Audubon or Cornell, uh, well, I don't remember if Cornell doesn't, but Audubon definitely does that, you know, we're trying to, to protect this or do this and you can click here to contact your, your you know, representatives and all you have to do is fill in your, your name and information. It's a form letter and it gets sent off. Some of it's really easy or you can take it and make it more personal uh, if you want to put more time into it. If you've got the means, contributing financially to organizations is, is wonderful. And as I mentioned before, even if it's just, you know, piggybacking off of your own publicity, uh, whether it's just social media, whether it's just family and friends, whatever it is, to be able to, to help to preserve these things that we like to go out and see and participate in. So that they're around for the next generation, generations after that. That's awesome. So my last question for you is what do you think is the most valuable thing that you've learned from birding? Oh, then it's not really about the birds. The birds are a means to, that sounds terrible. It's not the right way to put it, but the birds are something that bring us together, but it's really about the community. Um, I, the the people that I've met for, of of all ages from from kids to to retirees of uh, both gender well I should say all genders um, uh, just of uh, different education levels beginning birders people who've been birding for fifty years and can hear a chip call and know which bird it is it's just such a, a wide range of people and I, I just I, I love them all they're they're all everyone I met has been um, somebody that I, I'm glad that I got to know, somebody that I've enjoyed or that I've learned something from. So the birds, I love the birds. I love listing. I love taking photographs. Uh, I love all of that. But that really is just, it, it's not the most important part. The most important part is the community. Well, that's a great answer. I love that. And perfect, <laughs> perfect note to end on. Um, so if folks want to find out more about you and the your see your photos, how would they do that? Uh, well, I'm on Instagram at my last name, at my first and last name, which is Susan Petraco. Okay. Uh, and I have a website that is sometimes updated and sometimes not called the helpful birder.com. Uh, so I, I, you know, I just track things like, like my, the festivals that I go to or field trips that I've been on or travels that I've done. Uh, I, I do try to do a little bit of education uh, information there as well. So maybe learning how to identify a bird or if you're, I've got one um, article, if you are new to birding, where do you go find birds? You know, other than just looking up on the telephone wires as you drive by, people may not know where to look for them. You know, so I just try to, it's, it's one way that I try to give back is to offer some education things on that website too. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Thank you, Hannah. I've enjoyed being here. Thank you so much, Susan, for joining me for this chat. I really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit more. I've been following your, you know, social media, your Instagram for a while, enjoying your beautiful photos. So it was fun to hear more about you. And thank you all for listening to my podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe learned something. You can rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Music, and anywhere else you listen to me. If you'd like to connect with me, you can do so by following my Instagram, which is Hannah Goes Birding. My Twitter is at WomenBirdersHH, or you can email me at WomenBirders at gmail.com. I also have resources and information on GoBirdingPodcast.com. I hope you enjoyed this chat, and I look forward to seeing you at the next happy hour.